in front of us, we have the very strange and interesting prediction that Jesus gives to Peter in the Last Supper that he is going to deny Christ. Peter, Peter, Satan has been asking for you to sift you like we. Now, here's the crazy part of it, about it, and this is what makes it strange, is that Jesus allows it. He allows Satan to sift Peter like we. So, so Satan has his desires in this event, and God has his desires in that event. It doesn't mean that Peter couldn't have avoided it, because Peter could have avoided it, but he didn't. He made some mistakes right out of the chute. And this helps us to understand that there is the seen world that we operate in, that we pretty much have together. Then there is the unseen world of angels and demons and God's spirit and God working with us. And we are involved in spiritual warfare, the Bible says. We have an adversary. We have an enemy. What we do in the physical realm affects the spiritual realm. And we're made of, we have a spirit and we have a body. And so we live in the physical realm and we live in the spiritual realm. Years ago, there was a book written called uh, Living Between Two Worlds. That's the idea. That you are in the spiritual world and you are in the physical world. And what you're doing is affected in both of those places. And God, like God allows Peter to be tempted, God allows us to face temptation as well. So this message is Peter's denial foretold by Christ. We're going to be looking at temptation, spiritual warfare, God's protection, failure, and restoration. All in one sermon. You ready for that? All right, let's start with the text. Let's read the text and just listen. Listen to what's happening here and put yourself in Peter's shoes. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. I love the double Simon there. It tells you something's up. Remember when he said to Martha, when Martha was upset because Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things, but Mary has chosen the best part. So Peter's probably arguing with the rest of them about who's going to be the greatest. You remember that was last week's message, and that's just what's happening. And, Peter, and Jesus is like, Simon, Simon. I don't know exactly how he said it, but I think it was kind of in that kind of a little bit of a Simon, Simon. Indeed, you're arguing about being greatest. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might shift you, sift you like wheat. And what a scary thought that is. Satan's asked for me that he could sift me like wheat. Now, I don't know that he had to meet Jesus in, a, in an alley. Hey, Jesus, I just needed to talk to you for a minute. Peter, can I get him? Can I get him? Or, or whether like, you know, we can all pray at the same time, whether or not Satan is just saying, God, I want to sift Peter like wheat. If I sift this guy, he's going to bail. He'll fold. He'll crumple like a, like a wet newspaper if I get a hold of him. And God's like, okay. And we go, why? Why wouldn't God just go, no, you can't. The guy's fragile. But that's the point. He's fragile. He needs some strengthening and so Satan wants to destroy him by sifting him. And God wants him to be strengthened by sifting him. God has his purposes in it. And so then he says, but I've prayed for you. Now think of it from Peter's perspective. Simon, Simon, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Oh no, but I've prayed for you. Whew, good. And then he says that your faith should not fail. Notice he didn't pray that he wouldn't fail in temptation, but that his faith wouldn't fail. We know Peter fails in temptation. And then goes outside of that little courtyard where he denied Christ three times. 
crumples on the ground like that wet newspaper and weeps to God, weeps because of what he's done. After he looked eye to eye to Jesus, the Bible says that he denies it for the third time and then he looks up and he sees Jesus and they catch eyes and Peter goes outside of the courtyard and, and weeps bitterly. He's broken hearted over the fact that he has failed. Jesus said, your faith won't fail. He's prayed for him. So Peter must have thought, Satan wants to sift me like wheat, bad. Jesus has prayed for me, good, that your faith wouldn't fail, good. And then he says, uh, and when you have returned to me, strengthen the brethren. What? When I've returned to you, but you prayed for me that I wouldn't fail. But it's the faith failing. Why am I going to return to you? And then he says, strengthen my brethren. I'm not going to stop using you because of your failures. And that's really good to know, right? Because are there any of us here that don't have failures? That, that if God says, I'm not going to use you because of your failures, well, let's just all go, you know, because none of us are going to be able to do anything. And then he says, when you have uh, returned to me, strengthen the brethren. But then Peter responds in a way he shouldn't respond. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times. When, when in all of the Gospels so far has Peter ever been right and Jesus been wrong? And Peter's like, no. You're wrong. I'm not going to deny you. He should have at this point said, is, do I have to? Is there any way I can get out of it? Lord, help me. I don't want to deny you. Lord, I'm weak. Help me. I think that the reason Jesus told him that it was going to happen is because it was going to happen. I think there was an opportunity between the time Peter learned of this until it happened for Peter to make the right step so he would not fall into temptation. But he didn't do that. And we see the first one here. He's overconfident. The Bible says, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. He should have said, you're always right, Lord. God's word is always right. We do not know better than God. And when you say, no, Lord, you said this, but no, it's not true. I'm not going to do that. We should know we are always wrong and he is always right. He doesn't do a good job of handling that temptation. So, and, and, and we see another step as they leave the upper room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus says to Peter, he takes Peter, James, and John into the inner circle. And often we think that these guys are special. They must have been closer to God and more powerful because God kept them in the inner circle. Maybe they're like your pet dog that you got to keep closer to you because otherwise they're out of control. Maybe that's what these guys, Jesus is doing. Like Peter, James, and John, I got to keep them close because who knows what they're going to do. He brings them closer in and he says to Peter, Peter, pray lest you enter into temptation. He's giving him another step, another opportunity for him to not enter into that temptation. But Peter doesn't do well. He blows it again. In fact, uh, it says in Matthew 26, 40 and 41, then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. That's when Jesus had been praying. Uh, he went about a stone's throw away. He prayed, I'm in sorrow. Take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. If there's anything else uh, that possible, take this cup from me. He comes back and here's what it says. Matthew 26, 40 and 41. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said, Peter. So he addresses Peter. Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. 
If he had watched and prayed there, he might have been able to overcome it. He says, your spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter had that same struggle you and I have. We have a spirit because we've been born again by God and we want to do what God wants us to do. That's the way we know we're Christians, by the way. How do you know you are a genuine Christian? Because you want to do what God wants you to do and you do it, but you don't always do it. That's the struggle. Now, if you're here today and you say, I don't, I'm a born again Christian and I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Then I say, give it a check then. I'm not judging you and saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying one of the things that happens when you become a Christian is you want to do what God wants you to do. If you don't want to do what God wants you to do, then there's a problem. Jesus put it this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John, the youngest of the disciples, put it this way in the book of 1 John. If you say you love him, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. He's a little stronger than Jesus. And then he added on, and truth ain't in you. I want to do what God wants me to do. Does that mean I always do it? No, unfortunately. But I want to do what God wants me to do. Peter put it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And so he had that struggle and he did not pray. Now, where else in the Bible do we see God allowing Satan to tempt or to hurt someone, Satan having his purposes and God having his purposes. Two other places. One of them is with Job. So the, the sons of God are named, are, are, are in the presence of God and Satan is named among them. This is the arch enemy. This is the devil. This is the serpent in the garden. This is the dragon of revelation. And he says, God says to him, where you been? He says, well, I've been walking to and fro on the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? God brought him up. I hope if God ever has a conversation, did God not say, have you considered my servant Robert? I'd kind of like not, that not to happen. And Job says, well, he's only serving you because you bless him. Stop blessing him, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, all right, go ahead, take, take his stuff away, but don't touch him. So God always had his hand on the thermostat. I think that here with Satan sifting Peter like wheat, he's not letting him attack him in reckless abandon. He has his hand on the thermostat. He doesn't let Satan go at him full force. And the same thing with Job. But God had his purposes in allowing Satan to be able to attack Job in that restrained fashion. And Satan had his purposes. We see it again when Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Think of this. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit of God leads him into the place where he's going to be tempted by the devil. The devil has his goals and desires for what will happen there. And God has his goals and desires for what will happen there. This may be getting to the reason as to why God created Lucifer. We wonder, and, and Lucifer's not his name, so we'll call him Satan. Um, and I'm not going to get into why now. Just know that Lucifer's not his name. Uh, it is Satan is his name. Or say so we call him Satan. We don't know his name. And I'm way where I shouldn't be. Let's just get back to... <laughs> this may be why God allowed Satan, why created him and allowed him to fall. Because there needed to be that evil in the world that would, would forge us. We needed to be in the heat. We needed to be in the fire in order to become a strong steel. Steel needs to be forged. 
so it's not brittle, so that it is strong. And we need to be forged in the fire. And so this world has fires that we go into because God wants us to be strong Christians. He doesn't want us to be brittle and weak Christians. And so he allowed Jesus to be tempted by the devil, wanting that outcome. And if God allows you, and I'm going to make the point that I'm going to make the argument that he's going to allow each of us to be tempted. God is allowing us to be tempted to help forge us so that we would be like steel for Christ. Now, a couple of things that we should note. Number one, God uses temptations for his own purposes. Satan has his purposes. This is James 1.12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. When you endure temptation and don't give in, there's a special blessing in your life. This is really good to know because sometimes we wonder why am I tempted and why is temptation so strong? If you endure it, there's a blessing. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. And so see now the temptation brings that approval into our life. He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the temptation is to bring us a blessing and help us love God even more. And you might say, well, why don't I just love him without the temptation? Maybe you need the temptation. Maybe I need the temptation to help me in that deep love with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we're told that God will not tempt you beyond your strength. You may face temptations. You're going to face them. Listen to what it says. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That means all of us face temptation. And don't listen to some pastor who's like, you guys may face temptation, but I have achieved a certain spiritual height in my life that I never face temptation anymore. Except you're a liar. Other than that, you have no temptation in your life. You're pretending to be the super holy man you're not. The devil likes to think you're an awful person because you're being tempted. But Jesus was tempted in every way you are, yet without sin. You're, you're, what you're facing is common. We all face it. You're like, well, Robert, man, that's pretty, you're pretty horrible. Well, so are you. <laughs> but we know what we're, what's going on up here because we face it together. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He has his hand on the thermostat. He's not going to crank up the temptation to where you can't take it. It will be such and it will be, it will be strong, but he will not go beyond what you are able to resist. And then it says that he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So with every temptation comes a way of escape so that you can be blessed, so you can have greater love for God. These are things the Bible tells us as to why God allows us to face temptation. Now, I would like to have it done a different way, but my ways are not God's ways. God's ways are not my ways. And his ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. So we will face a world with a malevolent being. We will face a world where there is temptation. God will watch over us like he prayed for Peter. He prays for us. Now, Peter could have done a better job in handling it. We saw right away that he was overconfident. Overconfidence is a problem. We saw then when he got to the garden, he didn't pray. He slept instead. That probably came from overconfidence. I'm not going to deny him. I don't need to pray. If you know you're going to face temptation and you're overconfident about it, then you probably aren't doing anything spiritually to prepare for it. But if you know you're going to be tempted in the future, then you need to prepare for it. 
So here are four things the Bible tells us. I'll throw in a bonus one at the end. So really five things. The Bible tells us, I thought of the fifth one later on after I did my notes. So five things that the Bible tells us about preparing for temptation since we all know we're going to face it. The first one is to submit to God and resist the devil. Now, those two things before I read the text, that, that, that passage, let me just talk about what both of those things are. Submitting to God is when you say, I will do what you want me to do, God. No longer what I want to do, but whatever you want to do. When I read in your word what it tells me, the kind of man and woman you want me to be, I will, will try to be that man or that woman. I am submitting to you. You are submitting to his authority. You are submitting to him as God. You are not saying, it's my life. What was the, the Billy um, Joel song? It's my life, leave me alone. Right? Do you remember that? And sometimes that's the way we live, you know? Leave me alone, it's my life, God. I want to live in my way. You're submitting to yourself. You're not submitting to God. Submit to God and then resist the devil. This means that when he comes and he attacks you and you're tempted because he is the tempter, that you resist him. You say no, and you will not resist forever. You will resist and he will flee. Like he did for Jesus when Jesus tempted him, when, when Satan tempted him those four times. And finally, Jesus said, be gone with you. And he left for a more opportune time. He will flee if you will resist the devil. Now listen to what it says. This is James 4, 7 and 8. Submit to God or therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Again, you may feel at a distance from God. You may feel like you don't have that deep love for God anymore. I have this question often. I just don't feel God. I just don't have the, the passion for God anymore. What do I do? Draw near to him. Take the step towards him. Being in church is a good step. Preaching to the choir now. Being in church is a good step. You're here because you want to hear from God. You want to know him better. Pray daily. Seek him Ask him what we want you to do. Draw near to him and he'll move near to you. That's not always enough. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. This means if there's an area of behavioral issue in your life that you know you need to get out of your life, ask him to help you. Lord, I need to cleanse my hands. I seem to have this problem. It seems to be an addiction. It seems to be a behavioral issue. I need your help. Help me to be able to overcome this. As you draw near to God and you cleanse your hands and you stop being double-minded, you stop being this person over here and this person over here, then you're going to find the strength to be able to resist the devil and have him flee from you. Number two, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. I already told you that's what Jesus said to Peter. But in the Lord's prayer, Jesus said, don't pray like the heathens that think they're heard for their many words. Long prayers, rep repetition prayers are not where it's at. It's a meaningful, fervent prayer. And so Jesus said in that same passage, when you pray, pray in this manner. Our father who is in heaven. We have a heavenly father has been a different perspective than us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not about my will, God, but about your will in heaven as it is on, our, on our earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're to pray for our provisions. And notice this is a daily prayer. I would love to be able to say, give me this year or give me this day my yearly bread. In fact, we can just go, give me this, this day the bread for the rest of my life. I don't have to pray this again. 
But God wants us in that reliance upon him in that daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. When I wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep, I know that never happens to you, but it happens to me. And when it, when it happens, I want to pray. And I pray for people and I pray for my family. I pray for my grandkids. I pray for people at the church. I pray for people our struggles that I know of. And then I don't know what else to pray for. And so I'll pray the Lord's Prayer. But I pray meaningfully and I expound on each little section. And so where it says, provide our daily bread. Then the next one, I need so much. Forgive me my sins as I forgive those who trespass against me. And what's the next part? What does the next thing say? Deliver us from temptation and from the evil one. Isn't that interesting? In our daily prayer, we're to pray to be delivered from temptation. See, if you're praying to be delivered from temptation, maybe then God will do what he needs to do to forge your life outside of the temptation. But if you're not praying to be delivered from temptation, then you're kind of moving through your life and you're not seeking God. You're not looking for it. And God's like, you're going into the fire. You, you need to be forged. You're not going to be strong steel. Peter will not become strong steel unless he goes through this. There could have been another way. And so pray to be delivered from temptation and from the evil one. And then it goes on for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The rest of the Lord's prayer. The third thing that we need to do is to put on the full armor of God. And because of time restraints, I can't cover every piece of the armor. But, but Paul said, you are in a wrestling match with darkness, with principalities and powers and spiritual host of wickedness. And in order to survive this, you need to put on your armor and then you need to pray and stand. The helmet of salvation, knowing you are saved. The, when, and the way you know you're saved is that you want to do the things God wants you to do. Again, doesn't mean you always do them, but you want to do it. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. When you ask God to forgive you because of the blood of Christ on the cross, this is amazing. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't even just remove your righteousness. The Bible says he gives you the righteousness of Christ. That's amazing. I have a black car. I've had it for 10 years. Uh, it is a um, it's black exterior, black interior. And it's garage kept all the time. And yes, when it's 110 degrees, it's miserable to get into. Okay, yes, it's true. But it was my, my late wife's car. She passed away 10 years ago. I've kept it ever since. And um, when I clean it, it looks great. It's been, the garage kept its whole life. And when it's clean, black cars, there's nothing like them. They look fantastic. They look great. Get, to get them dirty, they look awful. So when my black car is clean, I'm driving around mud puddles. If I ever get to a dirt road, I park the car outside, I walk down the dirt road. No, that doesn't happen. But I'm just making a point. When we have the righteousness of Christ and we know it, there's something about keeping that righteousness. It helps us. So put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. The enemy takes the form of a minister of God so that we've got to be discerning on what the truth is. The enemy brings doctrines of demons and some of you may be believing doctrines of demons. They're not biblical. We put on our belt of truth. What does the Bible say and what is the truth? I want to live it. The shield of faith that puts out the fiery darts of the enemy. What is, what, what is someone trying to do in an army when they're shooting fiery arrows? They're not trying to hit somebody in the heart. They're trying to catch something on fire. Satan's shooting fiery arrows into your mind so that you'll freak out. It's all smoke and mirrors, but the shield of faith, God's word puts it out. 
And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and that's our offensive weapon. And every time that Satan attacked with a, with a, with a temptation to Jesus, he parlayed it with the word of God, giving him the word of God. Until finally Satan fled from him because he had his truth within the word of God. And so we need to put on our armor. And the last piece of our armor is our feet prepared with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you know you're a witness to Christ and that God is using you to bring people to the Lord. So you live your life the way you're supposed to because you want to see people saved. God, give us a passion for the unsaved to know you. That their destinies would change. That we would be effective in living for Christ so that people would see him. The fourth is to give no place to the devil. You can give a place to the devil. How do you do that? And this is Ephesians 4.27. That's the whole verse. Give no place to the devil. If you're looking to rack up memory verses, there's one for you. Give no place to the devil. But let me read it to you in context. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So anger is giving a place to the devil. Even if it's righteous anger and you're in it all the time. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath and be angry and do not sin. And if you're an angry person and you're sinning, then you're giving place to the devil. It goes on to say, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands for what is good, that he may have something to give to those in need. If you're stealing, you're giving place to the devil. And go and get a job, not so you can have, but so you can give. Don't you love that? He's not saying, go out and get a job so you stop stealing, you bum. He's saying, go out and get a job so you can help the needy, because that's what we as Christians do, is we help those who are in need. Then he says, let no corrupt word come out of your mouth, which means lying, malice, false, uh, slanderous statements, maliciousness, cursing, coarse jesting. All of that falls under this corruption. Let no corruption proceed out of your mouth. But that's giving place to the enemy. But what is good, necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do your words impart grace to the hearers when you hit your thumb with a hammer? Or miss that putt for you golfers? That you may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Don't give place to the devil. I'll give you one more. This is a bonus one. And I didn't look up where the passage is at, but the Bible says, flee temptation. Joseph fled temptation. He went into the home where Potiphar's wife was. He was a young man. She was a married woman. She wanted an affair. She wanted that passion. She grabbed him and she said, sleep with me. He knew that she wanted him. And so he stayed out of the house. But at a time she, he thought she was gone, he went to take care of the affairs he was supposed to take care of. And she grabbed him and she said, sleep with me. And he wiggled out of his coat and he ran outside. He literally fled that temptation. Now, Joseph had trouble keeping coats. His brothers took a coat from him earlier. Now he leaves a coat behind there. But Joseph, if, if, had Joseph remained, what might have happened? But Joseph knew, I have to get out of here. And when Potiphar came home, who was the commander of the army for Egypt, she said, this Hebrew came in to rape me. And she held up the coat. And Potiphar, I don't think believed her, but threw him, threw him in prison. He went from being sold by his brothers to being a favored son to sold into slavery, into prison in slavery before God gave him an, a, a gift of interpreting dreams 
and lifted him up out of that. Flee temptation. That's my, my bonus point. All right, a couple more things. I have five more minutes, so let's get moving. Verse 32, um, Jesus says to him, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. So God's goal in temptation is not that your faith would fail, even if you fail in temptation. That's why he went outside and wept bitterly. Judas failed in temptation because Judas wasn't genuine. But when you are genuine, then your heart is broken. You grieve over sin. Peter fell and wept. And I'm not saying to put on a show. I'm not saying to, to cry just so you can cry. But if you do cry, that's okay. David knew it. He sinned greatly with Bathsheba and by, with her killing her husband Uriah. And David has said, my heart is broken and I am contrite. My sin is ever before me. Forgive me, God. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. And then I will teach sinners your ways. David was heartbroken and God forgave him adultery and murder. Our God is so gracious that if we will be contrite, our sins will be forgiven. And even though David fell into that sin, his faith didn't fail. And when we give into temptation, where the enemy, your heart might condemn you, and probably does. Other believers may condemn you. And I've heard that. Well, this person did that. They were never a Christian. Didn't, didn't you ever read where it says not to judge people? How do you know whether or not they were really a Christian? How do you know that they might not be heartbroken over what they did when it was revealed and fell down before God on their faces and cried out to him and they have a real relationship with him? It's so easy to judge from a distance. Even if what they did was horrible, who knows that they might not have called out to God to be forgiven for what they've done. Because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He does not condemn you. To the woman caught in the act of adultery, where are your condemners, woman? There are none. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more, he said. What a savior. He didn't condemn that woman caught in the act of adultery but he forgave her and encouraged her to sin no more. And then he says, when you've returned to me, strengthen my brethren. Now, this is an amazing thing that he's restored into ministry. You might think, well, after Peter denied him, I mean, denying's a bad thing. You've probably never denied Christ. Someone ever said, are you a Christian? You're like, no, I'm not. You probably have never done that. So Peter did something that's pretty bad, but Jesus still used him in ministry. I walked away from Christ for a year. And I'll tell you that story sometime. But God came and got me. And I thought I was going to be a second class Christian. I thought because I walked away from him at 18, came back at 19, that I was going to be saved, but I was going to be doing, you know, auto work. That was my plan. I was an auto upholsterer. I had an auto shop. I was going to open up a super shop. I was going to do, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a certified auto mechanic. You're learning the Bible from a certified auto mechanic. How does that make you feel? I thought that's what God wanted me to do. I thought that's what I was going to be doing. That's why, you know, part of the reason I went to school for auto mechanics is because that's what I wanted. That's what I thought I was going to do. But God had other plans. God was like, you haven't, you have, you have not ruined my plans for you. You are not a second class Christian because you failed. God's a God who can restore failure. So when you return, strengthen the brethren. But then he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And I don't, I think he's being honest here. 
In the garden, he will pull out the sword. We'll revisit this statement. In the garden, he pulls out the sword. He's trying to die by soldier. He's like, I'm going to all defend you. Yeah, Peter the fisherman. Now, history tells us Peter was a big man. So he's probably formidable. So he's like, pulls out his sword. And Jesus is like, put your sword away. Stupid. No, Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And so this, this denial isn't a cowardice act on Peter. It's a frustrated act. He's trying to, to die for Christ. He said he would, and he meant it. But Jesus won't let him. And now he's frustrated. He doesn't know what to do. And there's Jesus being beaten, and he's by the fire, and he ends up denying him. And then in verse 34, he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times that you, or deny three times that you know me. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's the Old Testament. That's Isaiah 53. That's the servant prophecy that we are like sheep and we need him Otherwise, we wouldn't be saved. Three things to remember in closing. Remember, there is spiritual warfare. Put on your armor and don't give place to the enemy. Number two, remember, Jesus is watching over you. He is praying for you. I didn't have time to read those verses, but I've got three verses, and there's more than that, that tell us that Jesus is interceding for us. He is praying for you. He said he would pray for Peter. I covet you. Sometimes you guys will come and say, say, we pray for you every day. I'm so thankful for that. Please continue to do so. I covet your prayers. Paul said that. I do as well. And I pray for you. But we have Christ praying for us. If he's praying for us and we're living for him, if we'll make that effort, how can we lose? Because he's praying for us. And finally, remember, when you fail and you will fail, Remember when you do, there is no condemnation in Christ. He loves you. He will restore you. He'll, you'll learn something from it. You'll learn to be more in love with him. You'll, you'll be forged in the fire. You'll be stronger. Restoration is available for you. Don't let your faith fail. That's not why God brings us through temptation. Satan wants your faith to fail. But Jesus prays for us that even in the midst of that, our faith would not fail. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this strange passage where we learn that Satan wants to sift Peter like wheat. And Lord, that Peter does fail, that he is sifted and he fails, and yet you do your work in the failure. What an amazing thing that in our failure, you are doing a work as well. Help us to be strong. Help us to be forged. Help us to go through what we need to go through that we can be whom you called us to be to a world that so desperately needs you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.